Good morning, church. I got really quiet. It's so good to see you guys. It has it has been a week, right? It's been a crazy, fun, exciting week. Anyone have any issues with the freeze? Anyone? I had issues because I was stuck in my house. That's a problem. I'm, I'm actually a homebody. I love to be home, but you tell me I have to be home, and that's a problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then someone posted on social media, like it was day zero of the blizzard and they've eaten half of their snacks already. That was me. That was me. I do have a praise report though. You'll remember that last week I told you I couldn't find the California pizza Sicilian. The Lord provides. So on Monday, on Monday, I got a call from one of our church members who said, can you confirm which pizza you were looking for? And I quickly confirmed, believing it might be the Lord. And they bought me three pizzas. Won't he do it? Currently, church, I'm looking for... <laughs> I'm just kidding. Do it again, do it again. No, that was just so sweet. <clears throat> so sweet. It was Michelle and Connie. Thank you, guys. It was super sweet. I picked it up on... I don't know what day I picked it up, but I... You know I had a pizza that day. <laughs> Miss Connie asked me this morning if I had had any yet, and I was like, yes. <laughs> I made one the first day, and my wife had had lunch. She had a lunch meeting with someone, and I purposed in my heart to eat half of the pizza. <laughs> but my stomach won. And I ate the entire thing. Entire th I literally had to pray through. Uh, anyway. Speaking of praying, let's let's take a moment to pray for Travis. Um, his family's in the house, Jenny and Kaylee and I. Oh, yeah, Chase was drumming. And Brindley is here and mom-in-law is here. And, uh, anyway, Travis is in the hospital. He went yesterday. He's got some intestinal issues um, that is kind of a big deal, you know, for Travis because he has a condition um, Crohn's disease. And so when you have intestinal issues with an issue, then that's an issue. And uh, I don't know if we're online right now. We've been having some problems with our internet because of the winter weather. Um, so we've been on and off this morning. But Travis, if you're watching, uh, we want to pray for you. And if he's, if we're off currently, then he'll catch it on when we, you know, put it online tomorrow. Will you just stretch your hand toward the cameras right now? Father, in the name of Jesus, we just thank you for Travis. God, I thank you for, man, what a man of God that he is. A heart that is so tender, a heart that loves like Jesus. And a man who just is constantly walking in faith and believing you for more. And he's such an encouragement and such a father in this house. So God, we just ask that you would bring healing uh, right now, in the name of Jesus, to uh, his bowels, we command them to function properly. God, I thank you that, God, you are just causing everything within him to be made whole and be made right in the name of Jesus. And, God, until the doctors allow him to eat again, that's been over 24 hours, but until they do, God, give him the grace uh, to be obedient to the doctors and just allow his body to endure this. God, we ask that you would allow his physical body to endure what this condition is taking him through. 
Um, and if you don't heal him immediately right now on the spot, God, I just thank you that he's going to see your hand in the coming hours, in the coming days. I speak specifically against depression over him. I speak into him joy. I speak into him life in the name of Jesus. God, I thank you, God, that you were just encouraging his spirit. In fact, right now, I just release his spirit, man, to lead his body and his soul, to direct his emotions, to direct his physical ailment. I release his spirit, man, to be all that it was intended to be. In Jesus' name, I pray. Let the church say amen. 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 We love you, Travis. We are in a series. Uh, thank you. We're in a series called Sucker for Love. And it's a brand new series. And um, there are just so many things that I want to talk about. I haven't narrowed down. I haven't mind mapped what this series is going to look like because there are too many topics, more topics that I want to address than the weeks that I have. Um, there's so many things I want to talk about. Like, you know, when you talk about love, you almost have to talk about communication. Do you know what I mean? If we're talking about love in the context of family or home life, man, communication is the, it's a big one, right? Even if it's not spouse to spouse, it's, it's parent to child or child to child. Anyone have any teenagers that have almost tore your house down by arguing or fighting this week? You know? Like communication is a big deal. I'd like to talk about communication. I would also love to talk about uh, talking about love. I, I would love to talk about the ministry of singleness. I think in February we often focus on married couples, but there is there is such power in singleness. Like singleness is not the thing that you hold on to until you get to this other status of marriage, and so. I hope to talk about singleness. It's, it's a powerful concept. I, I hope to talk about, I probably will. I'm going to guarantee that I will talk about this at some point. Uh, pornography. Pornography is a disease that is ravishing the church and good grief. Like we don't, we don't look much different than the world when it comes to these hidden sins. Um, so you, you can't, almost can't talk about love unless you talk about the counterfeit love. Right, pornography has a hold on this generation, and man, I just want to—I want to just tear some chains and break some chains on that issue, but not today. Today, I want to talk to you about the verse that you think of when you think about love, right? Not not First Corinthians thirteen, the chapter of love, but the verse John three sixteen, for God so. I was just seeing if it would hold up through the entire verse. You guys did great. Um, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him would have eternal life, right? John 3.16. And then you go down to 3.17, which most of us don't really have memorized. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him, right? I feel like I can't even start a series on love without backing up just, just a, little, a little bit to talk philosophically about love. And I know I've already promised you we're going to do some real application later on in the series, right? 
I'm going to help you with your hidden pornography issue. I'm going to help you with your communication. I'm going to help you uh, take joy in your singleness. But I, I want to back up a little bit because, you know, John 3, 16, arguably the most famous verse that exists on planet Earth. Many of us don't know the 15 verses that happened before the 16th verse comes along. So I want to walk us through today, just exegetically, John chapter 3. Uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 17 together, all right? So have your Bibles. Go ahead and open them up to John chapter 3. We're just going to go verse by verse. I'll make some points along the way, um, and, then, and then I'll close it out with, with prayer. John chapter 3 if we look at Nicodemus, who is showing up on the scene, he is a Pharisee. And obviously, already by John chapter 3, Jesus is creating some waves. He's causing some tension because he's healing the sick. He's casting out devils. He's doing this or that. By the way, um, I'm going to be reading in the NIV translation. So if you're using your phone today, if you're reading in the Bible and you just want to follow along, um, on your app. Go to the NIV translation. It'll help you just know exactly word for word where I am. Um, I also like the NKJV. I brought that version, but I'm reading from NIV. So just didn't want to confuse some of you that are trying to follow along word for word. Verse one says this. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now let's talk about this. A Pharisee Many of us have, you know, um, kind of made fun of Pharisees in the past or people that act high and mighty. We, we tend to say, oh, they're, you know, like a Pharisee. But the truth is a Pharisee wasn't a bad person in Scripture. They, they, were, they were good people for the most part. They understood Scripture. As a Pharisee, you had to have all of God's law, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, memorized word for word. Now, so... For those of us in the 30-day shred, you know what a, a feat that would be. It's been hard just listening to these things, but they had to memorize word for word Genesis, the, the old scriptures, right? So Pharisees, you know, for the most part, wanted to know God, wanted to please God, wanted to do things God's way. And on occasion, you would see Pharisees kind of, get into themselves and become high and mighty and leverage their power and their authority to get their way. Uh, but just because Nicodemus was a Pharisee, it shouldn't automatically tell you that he was a bad guy. It should tell you that he was a committed guy. He was a dedicated guy. He was a hardworking guy. Do you understand? Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now, the Jewish ruling council was part of the Sanhedrin um, I would, I would e make it equivalent to like our Supreme Court, okay? Israel was a theocratic nation, and so the Jewish ruling council, they had uh, 12 to 15 members on that. Nicodemus was one. So there may have been 71, 72 of the top Pharisees who were the smartest of the smart. And then in the group of 71, they then had a council of 12 to 15 who was, you know, ruling, making all of the decisions, making all of the laws. And these guys were 
the cream of the crop. They were, they were the top of the top, right? And this guy who is so smart, knows scripture, wants to know God, comes to Jesus in verse two. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. So he comes to Jesus at night. Some scholars postulate, we don't really know, but they say that he came at night uh, because he didn't want to be seen by the other Jewish leaders. He wanted to you know, have a covert uh, operation where he wasn't really seen. But other people say he came at night because he had spent the entire day studying. Most Pharisees in that time frame, they studied well into the evening, so they didn't have any free time until late at night. But he came to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. Underline in your Bible that word we. Because Nicodemus is talking for someone else other than just himself here. And I'll get to who that is, who I think it is, in a moment. We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Born again. I suppose the foundation of my sermon, what I want you to walk away with today, would be what my title is. My title is, Love Makes a Way. If we're talking about love before we get to porn, before we get to communication, before we get to singleness, before we get to all, all of the other stuff, let's just settle in our heart that love makes a way. Not love makes ways. Love makes a way. And Jesus replied, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. That word again right there, it can mean two things. It can mean uh, born anew, like again. Um, I went to H-E-B again to look for pizza, right? Um, it again can also mean from above, born from on high, born anew or born from above. Now, it, it appears that Nicodemus is thinking it's anew. Because he, he's about to ask the question of how can I be born anew, born again? Can I go back into my mother's womb, right? He says in verse 4, how can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. So he's talking about the anew translation. But Jesus is talking about both. Dude, I think we had a sermon about both just last week, right? The power of both. Jesus is saying we need to be born anew and born from above. Born from on high and born anew. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Now there's some debate on what that verse means. Water and Spirit. And, uh, some people suggest that being born of water seems to indicate baptism. Like you make a decision for Jesus and you get baptized. I don't really believe that's what it's referencing. Um, some people believe when it says born of water and of spirit. 
I, I, it, my watch heard me say, Jesus, get baptized. And she replies, I'm not sure I understand. <laughs> of course you don't, because you're of the world. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know what I did. Some people believe that born of water means like to be a, a physical delivery, a vaginal delivery, right? The waters break, born of water, and then born of the Spirit is being rededicated or dedicating your life to Jesus. I, I don't believe that's what it means either. Uh, when he says born of water and the Spirit, uh, the clarifying word there is of, O-F. Uh, it's not saying born of water and of the Spirit as if it's two things. It's actually one thing, water and Spirit, of water and Spirit. It's, it's one thing. And, you know, clearly Nicodemus should know what Jesus is talking about because Jesus is about to get on his case saying, aren't you a teacher? Aren't you a scholar? You, how do you not know what I'm talking about? And if we look back at what Nicodemus should know, we would go to Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. It talks about water and spirit, and it paints a beautiful picture of being born again. I want to read that with you. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you... I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So when it says, be born of water and of spirit, the water talks about a cleansing, a purification, a holiness that sets on you, right? You move from death to life, you are, you are cleansed. But then of the spirit means you're set on a new path. You've got new direction. God is taking your heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. God is taking your mind and replaced it with his mind. God has taken your eyes and replaced it with his eyes. Our, our church was built on 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things are passed away. All things become, become new. You have to be born again. Being born again, by the way, is not a reformation of our physical man, outward man. It's not the education of a natural man. It's not the purification of the old man, but it's the creation and the imparting of a new man, a new nature, which is God's nature within us. You see, love makes a way that you and I can be born again. It's actually... Love's fault that you and I can be in relationship with Christ. Do you know what I mean? It's not anything you've done. It's not anything you've earned. It's not any checklist that you've completed. It's not any amount of giving that you've sown. It's not any amount of homeless that you've built homes for or the hungry that you've given water to. It's the love of Jesus Christ that made a way. Because love makes away. Verse 6 says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. In verse 7, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. 
<clears throat> As a Pharisee, you know, I, I get Nicodemus didn't understand where Jesus was headed. He didn't understand what was about to take place on Calvary. He, di he didn't know or understand the resurrection, but he knew very well, according to Ezekiel, this process of regeneration. You see, Jesus came to regenerate you and I without us having to go through the law. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. I have to tell you, I want to take a detour right now because there's something going on in culture, and I may be new to the party. It may have been going on for decades, and I'm just now becoming aware of it. Uh, but as a shepherd, as a pastor, I want to make sure and equip my flock, uh, as an under-shepherd at least, to understand what, what culture is doing so that you can stand firm in your beliefs. There is, there is this notion of deconstruction. Anyone heard of deconstruction, or is it new to you? Or is it so old that you're like, you passed it already? Okay, uh, one, deconstruction. One, two, three, four. Okay, five, so a few of you. Some of you are scared this is a joke. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to get you in trouble. Um, I just want to address deconstruction from a biblical standpoint. I think, you know, I, I got my minor in psychology, which is, I tell everyone it's just enough to get me in trouble. You know, it's not enough that I actually know what I'm talking about, but it's just enough that I can, uh, I, I enjoy playing around with it. it. Actually, I got psychology not because I wanted to fix any humans. I was going to go into artificial intelligence. Uh, so that's the purpose of my psychology. Turns out God had other plans. Um, but in the psychology world, I will tell you that they use deconstruction in a way that, that may be beneficial. Okay, so they say you go through, can I just explain it to you real quick? All right. Maybe you've not heard of it, you've not been tempted by it, you've not claimed to be in it, but I just want to give you a biblical perspective so that if and when you hear it, you know how to respond. All right. Um, they would tell you that there are three phases that you go through. One is construction. All right. Construction, we all go through construction as children when our parents are teaching us right and wrong, hot and cold, don't run out in the street, play in the yard. Things are very, very black and white. In theory, it's the building blocks that are handed to us to create a worldview as we mature. All right. And there, there has to be construction. Your parent, I love what Chad said, train up a child. I hope that my kids have a biblical worldview. I hope that I train them up in the ways of God and they see things through the lens of scripture, right? So construction is very important. But then there's the next phase called deconstruction. And deconstruction, which on the surface makes sense to me logically, all right? And by the way, if you're in deconstruction, if you're watching this a year down the road or two years down the road, I hope that I'm not coming off as someone who is, is trying to out the deconstructionist, all right? The people that are in deconstruction are probably some of the most authentic and real and wonderful and loving and kind people you would ever meet or know. I'm just wanting to establish a biblical framework on the topic that's kind of sweeping the world, okay? But in deconstruction, it says that as you become an adult, you realize the template you were given and then 
possibly that template was skewed. Maybe it had some biases, uh, maybe from your family of origin or your economic, family economics or previous generations philosophies. You just understand that what your parents built into you might be a little bit, a little bit skewed. And we start to question and we doubt and we probe uh, what's true and what's corrupted, right? And I think to some extent, we've all been there. I mean, have you not, like me, looked back at what you used to think and you think, I'm not sure that's right? Do you know? Um, so you have to be careful that you don't look at deconstruction as something that's all evil and unbiblical because I think there is a concept to be harvested here that we need to take hold of. I would call that maybe discipleship, digging deep, spiritual maturity, right? Taking inventory of things that we believed and readjusting according to the word of God, right? Uh, deconstruction, at least the hardcore deconstructionist, they just approach it from a very different lens, which I'll briefly explain because I'm out of time. But they would tell you at least psychologists, at least people that are pushing for the healthy side of deconstruction, they would say, uh, you can't stop there. Like the goal is not to stop in deconstruction. The goal is to then go to phase three, which is reconstruction. So you're constructed, you're deconstructed, then you reconstruct. So in reconstruction, you take all of the wisdom from the previous generations. Uh, there are a lot of wins to build on, but you reconstruct a worldview based on, on the wisdom that you've acquired. Um, but now we get to own our viewpoint. You know, you, you tore down what you were taught as a kid and then you rebuilt it up. But now because you are part of the rebuilding process, you have ownership in it. You know, I can't tell you the number of times I talk to people. Well, even, hey, let's not make it about other people. I'll just tell on myself. I can't tell you the number of times people will ask me what I believe about something and I'll respond with what I believe. But then I realize I've just heard that my whole life. I've never really investigated that for myself. I've never really put that through the test of the fire of scripture. Do you know what I mean? And if you're self-aware, you probably have seen that too. Like, well, why do I believe in, in these things? Well, because grandma told me or mom told me or dad told me or that's just the way that it's always, always been. But once you can get to the root of why you believe what you believe and you've reconstructed, this is, again, psychology's perspective. You reconstruct what you believe. You have ownership and you walk in more power, right? Now, I would... If deconstruction was only about unlearning the bad things and relearning the good things, I would totally be okay with baptizing that word and talking about it in the context of scripture, right? Um, the, the problem though is deconstruction doesn't just stop with unlearning bad stuff and relearning good stuff. Deconstruction at the very core really assumes that everything is problematic. Everything in scripture is potentially wrong. The, the, the resurrection of Jesus is problematic. The literality of scripture is problematic. The, do, do you know what I mean? Like deconstruction to tear down their belief system, they don't necessarily hold on to many truths at all. I read an article this week that infuriated me 
You ever get so mad you want to cry? I feel like I'm about to cry now because I was so mad <laughs> about the article that I read. But it was about, I, I presume this guy calls himself a believer. And it was an article and I'm not going to share his name or the title because I don't want, I don't, I just don't want him to get more clicks. But he said, how did this deconstruct as a Christian? You know, he gave a certain number of steps. How to deconstruct as a Christian? And I thought, oh, okay, maybe he's, he's coming at it from a biblical worldview. This might be cool. And point number three, like ripped my soul out, I felt. He said, as Christians, we have to stop believing that the Bible is inerrant. It is possible to still love and see the beauty of God's word and the parables and the content and all of that while recognizing that it's filled with errors. In fact, I took a photo. Because I wanted to make sure and quote him for real. He said, grasp the fallacies of biblical inerrancy and de-idolize the Bible. That's what some Christian leaders are preaching in their pulpits. De-idolize the Bible. But Jesus is the word. He didn't just speak the word. He didn't just inspire the word. Jesus is the word. And so when we tell a generation to de-idolize the Bible, we're really telling them to take Jesus off the throne. You see, love makes space for you, but love only makes one way. You must be born again. I, I picture Nicodemus coming to Jesus and he, he's asking Jesus this question. In fact, he showed up with Jesus with a statement saying, we believe that you might be X, Y, and Z. He didn't even come with the question. And Jesus starts to answer a question that he didn't ask. And by the time the conversation is over, Nicodemus is leaving with more questions than he had shown up with. But he's sitting there and, and Jesus in verse 10 says, you are Israel's teacher. You don't understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Verse 13, we're getting close to the scripture. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up. So he's referencing here, uh, Numbers 21. Number 21, the Israelites are in the wilderness and these fiery serpents come into the wilderness and they bite all the people and, and Moses prays and God says, lift up a, a brazen serpent onto a stick and they're going to be healed. It was symbolization that Jesus himself was going to be lifted on a cross. And as he's lifted on a cross, all of our illnesses will be made healed, right? Our not being in right standing will be made right because he is the brazen serpent. Verse 
14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This famous scripture we need to understand is on the heels of a very important interaction that centers around the concept of being born again. You don't get entry into the kingdom because you're loved by God. You get entry because you're born again. You don't get entry into the kingdom because you've paid your tithe for this month and you've gone to church at least 30% of the time and when you weren't present, you were online. You, you don't get entry into the kingdom because of all of those things. You get entry because you're born again. You don't get entry into the kingdom because you really beat that addiction and you took care of it and, and you've really straightened up morality-wise. It's not about anything you're doing or not doing. It's about being born again. And so what happened to Nicodemus? We don't really know if we're going to see Nicodemus in heaven, but I have my suspicions. Nicodemus was the, the top of the top. In fact, if Jesus was going to hold a summit with all of the religious leaders, right? If you took uh, Gandhi and you took... By the way, I'm not suggesting all of these people represent Jesus. I'm saying all of the world's religions, right? Muslim, Catholic, uh, let's see, who, who, Mother Teresa, maybe, would, would be a good representation for that. Maybe, um, who would represent Bible-believing Christianity? Um, maybe, give me somebody. Billy Graham! Billy Graham would represent Christianity. Great, wonderful. Um, he, would, he would then need someone to represent Judaism. And I would think it might just be Nicodemus because he was the top of his class. Like he was, you know, a Pharisee way above in righteousness, way above any of the people. But then in, in the group of 71, he was in the Sanhedrin, which is above the 71. And then Jesus called him the teacher of Israel. So I would think Nicodemus would probably be the one that represents the Jewish community. And we find in chapter 6, maybe 7, John chapter 6, maybe 7, that Jesus is teaching and they send guards to arrest him. And the guards come back and they say, well, we can't arrest him. Have you heard what he's teaching? Like he's, he's making sense. What he's saying is life-changing. And the, the Pharisees are getting upset. The arrogant Pharisees are getting upset. And scripture tells us in John 6 or 7, let's see, John 7, um, John, John 7, that Nicodemus stands up and, you know, kind of covertly supports Jesus. And he says, well, shouldn't we, shouldn't we at least hear what he has to say? So he went to Jesus in cover of the night. Jesus says, you must be born again. And then four chapters later, Nicodemus is, is kind of wanting to give Jesus a platform to speak. And you may know the rest of the story. Jesus isn't given a platform to speak. In fact, they murder him, right? 
But then we see in John... I'm sorry, guys. I had a problem with my notes this morning, so none of my page numbers are on here. So I'm flipping through like a madman. But John chapter 19 says, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph of Arimathea was also on the council. Um, So he was on the council with Nicodemus in the Sanhedrin. So my guess is that they had, you know, a hallway meeting after the meeting, if you know what I mean. You know, they had the corporate meeting as the Sanhedrin bashing Jesus. But then in the hallway, probably Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were talking about the possibility of, could this really be the Messiah? Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. Had the two secret disciples not asked for the body of Jesus to lay it in a borrowed tomb because it was typical in that day for crucifixions to result in just discarding the waste in a uh, pile, right? They, They weren't normally put into a tomb, but because of two secret disciples who probably by now understood the concept of being born again, requested the body and put it in the grave. You and I have record of day three. I want to pray. I'm going to ask our team to come up. sure that I really got to finish my thoughts on deconstruction, but I, I hopefully have made the point that if you participate in the world's view of radical deconstruction, where everything is problematized, it is quite impossible to reconstruct from the same lens that you've torn everything down with, and the flesh will always give birth to the flesh. The flesh isn't going to change the world, guys. But when the Spirit births the Spirit through us, that's when our neighborhoods change. That's when our communities change, our cities change. I, I personally don't believe the Bible, the Scripture tells us there is an end time um, revival. I don't believe I don't have time to get into that. I believe the revival is actually after the rapture and there is a a new awakening. John eats the book in Revelation and he's told to prophesy again. There's a new apostolic outpouring and boom, there's a new revival. I I could get into that. I don't even know why I'm getting into that. I just love talking about end times. What was my point, Kim? You don't know. 
you don't have to eat. What is it? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I don't believe, thank you. It wasn't really deconstruction, but it reminded me. While I don't believe in end time revival globally, I do believe that you're still living in hope. That there is still revival to be explored in your home and in your heart. You see, Nicodemus, when, when, when he was talking about regeneration, Nicodemus only thought corporately. His, his lens was corporately. The nation of Israel was going to be regenerated. But Jesus said, I'm not talking about corporately, I'm talking about individually. You must be born again. And I believe that while revival may not, may or may not, I could be wrong. I'm not, it's not, uh, I'm not that dogmatic on it. I do believe it, but I'm not dogmatic. I could be wrong. If I'm wrong, bring a revival. That's great. I want to be on the front lines of it. But even if there's not a global revival, I will be contending for personal revival in my heart, in the heart of my kids, in my marriage, and in my family, in this church, and in Austin, Texas. Because the world needs a church that is born again. Will you stand to your feet? Can we go out with a worship song? I just would like, I know we're out of time, but I'd like to spend about seven minutes uh, praying. Carrie, is there anything that you want to pray over? Why don't we start singing and then you just have a mic prepared.
trust in Jesus Christ. Believing that the gospel, by the way, is found concisely in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, but believing that Jesus died on a cross for your sins, that he was put in a grave, and that he rose again. And you and I can live victoriously because he did that for us. He would have done that for you if you were the only one messing up on planet Earth. He would have done it for you. And being born again is acknowledging that, not just saying, I believe that it happened. Even the devil believes that it happened. He witnessed it. But choosing to put your faith, all of your hope, all of your conviction in the one who conquered everything that you could ever go through. Being born again is an experience where we're willing to die to ourselves so that he can live in us. You know, I have to say that it's the spirit of God that draws people into a place of repentance. You didn't really choose yourself to become a Christian. God was calling you before you acknowledged the calling that was drawing you. But I also know Christians who have gone to church their entire life and the fruit on their tree doesn't look like one of a born-again believer of Jesus Christ. So there's something very supernatural that happens when we put our faith in Jesus, when we put our hope in him. There's a washing and then there is a coming alive in the spirit. For some of you this morning, maybe you're watching online. This is the moment that is going to change your life. If you're ready to be born again, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ that was poured out for you so that you and I could come into alignment of the kingdom but in relationship with our creator. If that's you, will you just wave your hand at me? You're ready to get born again. And maybe, yeah, I see that hand. Thank you. I see that hand. Thank you. Several hands all over the room. And maybe you've been coming to church for a while and you're like, you know, I just want to settle it in my spirit. I'm not sure. I think I've said a prayer here or there or when I was two, somebody sprinkled water on me, you know, but you're just ready. You're like, Pastor Trey, I'm ready to make the decision today. I want to remember, what is today's date? What month? February 6th, 2022. You were born again into the kingdom of God. So if that's you, one more time, just wave at me. Good, 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 good. Several of us. Can we just pray this prayer? It's simple, simple. Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner. I've done bad things. I've thought wrong things. I've built a life with a faulty worldview. But today, I declare that I believe Jesus is Lord, that he died on the cross for me to cover my sins. He was buried in the grave. 
he rose on the third day. And he rose on the third day. I declare. I declare. And I come into agreement. And I come into agreement. That I'm a son. That I'm a son. I'm a daughter. I'm a daughter. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's celebrate.